welcome to the Forgotten Fighter podcast, where we will share with you some stories of individuals who were pioneers in the American civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, but were often left out of history books. I'm Lily. I'm Shifra. I'm Anise. I'm Merlis. We created this podcast because we noticed that in the discussion of civil rights, we often hear few, the the same few names, Rosa Parks, Martha Luther King Jr., and so on. And while they all did incredible work and should be celebrated, there, are, there were plenty of other activists who contributed equally as much and yet aren't recognized. We're excited to tell you a bit about what we've learned about some of these forgotten fighters and hope you will find this podcast valuable. Before we get started, thank you to Testudo the Diamondback Terrapin for sponsoring this episode of Forgotten Fighters. Testudo is the UMD college mascot. When you see him around campus, be sure to give his nose a pat for good luck. If you want to be like Testudo and get a shout out on a future episode, head to anchor.fm slash forgotten fighters to find out how you can make a contribution. Today, when people read my name, they may not know who I am, and most likely they won't. I have three grandkids. They aren't the least bit interested. But any time I pick up a historical publication, I feel as if a period or a comma in that book is my contribution. That was the voice of Dion Diamond, who we'll be discussing today. As always, let's start out by looking briefly at his life story and some of the bigger actions he was involved in. Dion Diamond was born July 2nd, 1941 in Petersburg, Virginia. He attended Howard University and then transferred to the University of Wisconsin and went on to work for the federal government before retiring at age 61. He started standing up against Jim Crow laws and for civil rights early in his life. In an interview with NPR's Story Corp, he said that when he was in his teens, he got tired of looking at the whites-only signs in his community and decided to stage his own personal protest. He sat at the whites-only lunch counters by himself, narrowly escaping when the police showed up. He frequently landed in jail for his actions and even got to know some of the inmates there. Some of the most defining moments in Dion's activism happened during his time with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, better known as the SNCC. In 1961, students at Berkland High School in Macomb, Mississippi decided to stage a walkout in protest of their principal's policy that students who participated in sit-in lunch counter protests would not be allowed to enroll in the school for the fall semester. With the help of SMCC leaders, including Dion, they walked out of class and marched to the Macomb City Hall, where nearly all of them were arrested. They were suspended for three days and allowed to return to school on the condition that they would sign a contract saying that they wouldn't participate in any more protests in the future. Most of them refused to sign it and thus were expelled again. SNCC organizers decided to set up their own school called Nonviolent High to educate these students. Dion Diamond, who had some scientific knowledge, became the physics teacher at Nonviolent High until it disbanded. Another thing he is well known for is for his two-year devotion to the Freedom Rides all across the South. On his first day involved in the movement, the buses rolled in Jackson, Mississippi. He was immediately arrested for 60 days. During this time, he and everyone included moved from the county jail to, the, to a prison farm to the state penitentiary, all because more and more people kept being arrested. Dion also had a really interesting mailing connection. In the late 19th century, 
Glen Echo Amusement Park in Glen Echo, Maryland had been a big attraction for white residents in the area. Black residents did not have access to any theme parks. The only black theme park was in Maryland had been closed since 1940. In 1960, Dion and fellow Howard University students picketed at the gates of the park all summer, determined to desegregate it. They even gained the support of residents, mostly white, who lived in neighborhoods around the park. After many appeals to the Maryland Federal Circuit Courts, the Montgomery County Council, and the owners of the parks themselves, the park was finally desegregated in March 1961. Currently, Dion is retired and lives in D.C., and he is continuing to share his story with many who are inspired by him. So definitely a very accomplished life, and he was at the forefront of a lot of this movement. So next, we wanted to carry on the theme we've touched on throughout the series and discuss exactly why Dion is a forgotten fighter. Clearly, clearly he was very involved, but why hasn't he been recognized until recently? So one of the biggest reasons he wasn't recognized was that he was very forward about his activism and refused to take a backseat. Like we said, he got arrested a whole lot of times and wasn't afraid to face the law. For our activists who wanted to pre present a put together image to white Americans they were trying to convince, this wasn't necessarily a favorable thing. He, was put, he also put himself in a lot of dangerous situations that wasn't necessarily unique to him. Since the tense, violent uh, racial climate of the era made it so that many civil rights activists had to face white counter protesters and police officers. That being said, Dion did encounter a lot of situations where members of the American Nazi Party, Party and other hate groups showed up to at his lunch counter protests. At the protests, uh, Glenn uh, Glen Echo Park and so on. Uh, for more conservative members of the movement who wanted to protest at, as peacefully and safely as possible, they probably saw Dion as a barrier of doing so. Stokely Carmichael was one of the leaders of the SNCC, and he happened to end up in the same jail cell as Dion on one of the occasions that they were arrested. Um, a few years ago, they, they recounted their story and recalled that Dion was provoking the police officer in their cell who was threatening to shoot them and talking back to him. These sorts of in instances earned him the nickname Crazy Dion Diamond. So it's clear that there's a little bit of resistance to the level of grip level of aggression and boldness that he carried out with his protests. On a similar note, according to Gallup poll that was conducted back in 1960s, only 22% of Americans have approved of the freedom rights at this time. So while people can praise the initiatives, that Dion wasn't involved, all they want to today as they should, that doesn't necessarily mean that they had the same favorable uh, attitudes toward them during the civil rights era itself. So this also, this also kind of brings up the point that a lot of people today may say, oh, I totally would have supported the civil rights movement if, it, if I had been alive in that area, but the numbers reveal otherwise. So does the reception of to Dion's work at that time. Yeah, definitely. I just also want to jump in really quick here and say, um, that 22%, I'm pretty sure, included both white Americans and Black Americans. So obviously, he and other activists faced the first sort of layer of resistance from white Americans who didn't agree with this movement. And then they also faced um, a layer of resistance from fellow Black Americans who may not have agreed with their methods in obtaining civil rights. So there was kind of both those sort of layers of resistance that they had to surpass. 
kind of jump back in, but I do agree. And it kind of shows like a parallel between the civil rights era and the Black Lives Movement, uh, Black Lives Matter movement. Um, so some Black folks may not agree with the way Black people are protesting nowadays because of how the movement is portrayed in the media. So in some media like the right, the conservative media, they're showing how Black Lives Matter are starting protests when that's not the case. It's always the police triggering them to react, respond that type of way, you get what I'm trying to say? So it's kind of similar to how Dion, Dion um, was Dion's character, how he was perceived as someone who was very um, aggressive, not, and they're really like, they're really like not aware about what might be triggering that uh, aggression, just like how Black Lives move the movement, because the Black Lives Movement, the way we do it, we do, we have silent protests and then police come and they amplify that and they make it to a whole nother, event. Yeah, definitely. That's a good point. And I think Dion has actually spoken on the Black Lives Matter movement in a recent interview he did with the Washington Post. And he sort of talked about how it was a continuation of what a lot of civil rights activists did back in the 60s. So there very much are those parallels between not only the methods that different activists used, but also sort of the reception to them and the misunderstanding of how all those protests played out. So that's a really interesting parallel. Yeah, definitely. There's also the interesting like fact that when white people protest and like are really like if they're like strongly believe in something they're seen as passionate but then there's like a double standard where like when black people do it they're seen as aggressive so i feel like that really ties into a lot of what happened is a lot of the reason why Dion wasn't as recognized for his activism exactly in the 60s yeah he also stated in an interview that the end of his activism came with the involvement came with his enrollment at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in the year 1963. He noticed that it was the year he was supposed to graduate, that people of color with college degrees had job openings that they hadn't had before, and and he was noticed by the dean of the university. While his activism lasted about a decade, this was still before the height of the overall movement. So his lack of college education that made him enroll in the University of um, Wisconsin could have been like as we talked about before the high school kicked out all the students who like wanted to be involved in the movement and i i'm sure that there were many many colleges that also tried similar things so i wouldn't be surprised if this happened at his own college he said in an interview i believe with the washington post that he thought the Freedom Rides would be a long weekend thing, but it turned out to be a two-year stint. And college is hard, and the fact that, like, he was trying to do these two very um, involved things at the same time, it means one of them would have, like, had to fall through, which apparently was his college education. Yeah, for sure, because we kind of saw when he was enrolled at Howard, he had to drop out and make the civil rights movement take precedence. And at this point in his life, he had that take a back seat and focused on his education once again. Cause you know, both of those things were very big things in his life and he had to make some choices. Just to jump in, right? Cause I feel like um, getting a college education plays a big important role in how people view you as a person. People will like likely take you serious if you have a degree uh, on your name. If you don't have a degree, they probably will not take you serious, honestly. So I do agree with when he had to like, you know, focus on getting his education before 
other organizations. Yeah, for sure. Because, you know, they would have been like, oh, here's this very aggressive, bold activist. And he also doesn't have a college degree. So why should we take him seriously? So he sort of wanted to present himself in a certain way as well. Right, I agree. Definitely. So I think overall, what we can conclude here is that Dion Diamond, again, fits into this mold of the forgotten fighter that we've been discussing through all of our episodes. So one of the main objectives of the civil rights movement was convincing white society that segregation and inequality and other things like that were wrong. And that forced um, many of the black activists in the movement to operate under a pretty restricted type of activism in order to present the most convincing, most refined image of their movement that they could. And for Dion, this meant taking a backseat and not getting recognition because of the way he was very bold and unforgiving. But fortunately today, we're starting to realize the true extent of the role he played and we know his legacy will carry on going forward. We hope you learned something new in listening in to this episode. We hope you'll tell the story of Dion Diamond to someone else to spread and celebrate his work. Thank you for tuning in and we hope to see you again soon.